Amen. Thank you, Alex. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word, if you will, to Exodus chapter 21. Or you can find it printed in your bulletin. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We have a long passage of Scripture this morning. Um, we are in the latter half of kind of a two-part Book of the Covenant uh, that Josh started last week. Uh, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and that after the Ten Commandments continues case explanation of how these Ten Commandments are to be applied in the theocracy of Israel. Um, we're going to read the last portion of this, uh, what's been called the Book of the Covenant, and I'm not going to read all the verses uh, for sake of time, but I'm going to read selective portions that are representative of what we're going to look at today. So I'll key you in whenever we skip uh, verses. But starting in Exodus chapter 21, verse 33, here now as I read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of, that, of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Skip, if you would, to verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate." Go to verse 1, chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be, to be a malicious witness. 
You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Move down to verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its, in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of the other gods, of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Concluding with verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Our God, as we come to your word, as we come to what can be seen often as a difficult passage of scripture to understand all of its parts and pieces, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's criminal what they can charge here. We use that phrase. I use that phrase in my mind, probably some version of it. We were at the Great Wolf Lodge in North Carolina last week as I paid $18 for my smallish plate of nachos. I thought, this is criminal what they're getting away with. Uh, but we're held captive, and we pay it. And when we say it's criminal, we're not usually, in our English you know, descriptions, we're not usually referring to something illegal. Usually we're just referring to someone taking advantage of somebody else, like it's so criminal. Well, I don't always look into taking out a high-interest loan, but when I'm preaching on Exodus 21 to 23, I do. And so I found that I could borrow $1,000, I could borrow $1,000 at anywhere from 350 to 699% interest. Uh, and I would have the money today, and I would only have to pay $111 every week for the next year and a half to end up paying back the lender $8,700 for the $1,000 that I borrowed. Ladies and gentlemen, that's legal, but as we say, that's criminal. Well, the Word of God has something to say about circumstances like that. I mean, if we take a look at verse 25 of chapter 22, here is a, here is a, a case and a principle. Verse 25 of chapter 22, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. This reflects the principle of you shall not steal. You shall seek your and your neighbor's prosperity. I mean, the word of God, God is basically saying, look, you can lend money. You can lend money at interest. You can even lend money to the poor person and expect that they pay you back. But if you do lend money to that poor individual, 
don't charge him interest. Don't take advantage of him. He's poor. If you lend him money, just, just let him pay you back what you loaned, you know, assuming that you had the financial capability to do so. Again, that reflects the principle we see in one of the commandments, you shall not steal. And so this, we have this case. Look, don't charge interest to the poor person that you lend money to. Reflects the principle of seeking your neighbor's prosperity in one of the commandments, you shall not steal. And that also gives us a reminder, a redemptive reminder. And this is the pattern that we're going to follow today as we move through this, these sections. We have a case that represents a principle, and it gives us a redemptive reminder. And the redemptive reminder that we get from this, this example in verse 25, Christ gave us who had nothing, everything expecting nothing in return that's a redemptive principle and reminder that we see here just in this little example of look don't lend money to a poor person expecting interest in return we're reminded christ gave everything he didn't simply loan us something he gave me everything his life expecting nothing in return and i want this as we move through this scripture today to also be a way in which you see that you can read Scripture on your own. That as you're going through passages like this, okay, this is what God is saying here about this particular case or this particular law. This shows me something about God's character, something about the nature of redemption, something about the nature of Christ. That's how we can read through passages like this. And so that's the pattern we're going to follow. We have cases that reflect principles for us, practical principles that remind us of redemption. The first thing, uh, the first section that you see in your outline, the first section of scripture that I read, uh, we encapsulate as restitution for damage. Look, if you cause someone else loss as a result of negligence or as a result of intent, you shall make restitution negligence is what's talked about first in the passage that we read at the end of chapter 21 in verse uh getting myself lost here verse 33 chapter 21 when a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it the owner of the pit shall make restitution he shall give the money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his when an ox, when a one's man's ox butts another so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast they shall also share. So look, if you got two animals, one kills the other, you, you kind of split the cost. You make restitution by splitting it. But if you are the owner of the animal, that and you know that that animal has been accustomed, and you haven't kept it in, you're being negligent and you owe more. That's what God says in his word in the next section. If, if it is known, verse 36, that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. We have this principle reflected in our own laws. As we take the general equity, we don't mirror these laws of Israel's theocracy in our land, but we can take the general equity of the principles. 
someone is more responsible, someone is, uh, has a greater duty when they know that they could have done something to protect. So we have laws about negligence. Uh, we have principles that we apply, and that's reflected from God's word here. We also do this a little instinctively in our own relationships as we reflect the, this principle of uh, negligence and continued aggravations or, continu- or greater heinousness of the law in our own relationships and in our own homes. So if brother steals a toy from sister for the first time in the day, that might result in discipline option A. When a brother steals the toy from sister for the fifth time in the day, that might result in discipline option E. You will give the toy back and you will fabricate your sister another toy. Uh, Whatever that might look like. But the principle that we draw from this case is this. Sinning against someone else can require restitution. Sinning against someone else can require restitution. It is not always simply, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry that happened. I I wish I hadn't. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And then that's it. It may be that. That's good and fine and valid. But it may also be, I am really sorry. Forgive me. Can I help? even though it may not cover the cost of all of it, can I try to make it up to you? Can I do this for you? And so what I want to ask you is, who is the individual, who are the individuals that you may have sinned against in in long history, recent history, this week? Who have you sinned against and what might restitution look like? That's the principle that we draw from the word here. Sinning against someone can require restitution. Okay, who is it that I might need to be restored to? Now, to the person who has been harmed, to the person who has done the harming, seek restitution. I don't know what that looks exactly like for you. To the person harmed, if someone is seeking restitution with you and to you, You have the duty, you have the call from Scripture to be a loving, forgiving, and gracious person. It's not, you're darn right you did wrong, and I'm going to hang this over your head, you know, for a long time. Okay, that is not the attitude of the person that is receiving the restitution. That's the case. This is our principle, and the redemptive reminder is this. Christ is our restitution. What is the cost? What do we owe to God for rebelling against him? And how do you pay that? How do we pay that? It is unpayable by sinful man. Christ steps in and is the full restitution for our sin. The case, the principle and a redemptive reminder. This should remind us of how much redemption costs. The second principle and redemptive reminder I want us to look at, we read in verses, um, we read in verses 18 to 25. 
of chapter 22, I believe. Yes. At first glance, when you look at verses 18 to 20, it can just seem like three random disconnected things. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any other god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Again, I'm in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 22. But what, what I want us to see as we read these three seemingly separate things is that the commandments are intertwined. These three things, while they might seem separate, as John Currid mentioned in his commentary, are really all related to idolatry. They're all intertwined with, you shall have no other God before Yahweh. It's in verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any other God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Adultery, which includes lying with an animal, was a pagan worship practice of the other nations and so is related to worshiping another god sorcery uh, making it seem as if you can manipulate creation or tell the future think think of the egyptian uh the egyptian competitors to moses who were trying to do the same things moses did this is again related to idolatry and worshiping another god now Laying with an animal is specifically, you could call it more specifically from the uh, seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But we see that it's intertwined and related with the first commandment, have no other gods before me. The practice of sorcery, um, of making it seem as if you can manipulate creation and tell the future, that's related to lying. And it's related to the third commandment in blaspheming God's name. But we see that it's intertwined with the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me alone. And so that's one of the principles that I want us to see as you read through Scripture. These aren't, necess- these aren't just random things that God is throwing out. Commandments are intertwined and related. And breaking one results in breaking others. Keeping some, uh, keeping them, results in keeping others as well. So, let's take a moment, since, we, since we're on the topic of sorcery and, and sorceresses, let's take a moment and talk about professional musician, um, <laughs> magicians. I figured that'd be the perfect way to derail uh, this sermon. I'm only half kidding, I, I hope. So, as I'm scrolling through social media, I, I've, I must have clicked on them enough that the algorithm knows that I like these magicians on America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent, whatever it is, and I'm watching this guy and I'm fascinated as he is, it's just a guy with little squares of paper and he is just producing square after square from nowhere, throwing him in the air. As he throws it in the air, he sucks it up to his mouth and then blows it away. He, he lets a square fall and it twirls down and then brings it back up to his hand and it's amazing. Is that, is that what the Bible calls sorcery? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think many, or maybe I could say most, uh, professional magicians are doing it for entertainment purposes, not with the assertion that they are really able to manipulate creation and tell the future. But there are some who do. There are some who would claim, I can help you talk to your dead loved one. 
I can look at your palm and tell you what tomorrow will bring, tell you how long your life is. Is that lying and blaspheming? Yes, I think it is. And so I think there's a way in which even in our context, we can look at the different situations and apply God's word. And you might say, whew, thank goodness I don't have anything to do with evil sorcery. I haven't been to a palm reader. I haven't sought to look into the future or anything like that. Well, what's the principle? The case is sorcery is bad, evil. What's the principle? Attitude of the sorcerer. I'm in control, and I know what tomorrow brings. Now, does that attitude sound a little bit more like someone you know? I'm in control, and I know what tomorrow brings. James talks about this in James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Are you a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes? James isn't talking about sorcery, but he is. The attitude of it. I'm in control and I know what tomorrow brings. I even found myself thinking this same way earlier this week as I'm preparing to preach on this passage. Just like, okay, I'll go through this. I'll look at that. And as I was looking at this, I thought, man, I'm just being so presumptuous that I am going to be here on Sunday morning. Just presuming I know what tomorrow brings. And it's that moment when it's like, yeah, preacher, the sermon applies to you. Uh, this is you as well. So I'm not exempt from this. Now, I'm not saying that we need to walk around like, oh, I might not walk out of these doors. I might get struck by lightning. Car might hit me. Anything could happen. Uh, that is an alternative but that is the atheistic, no one is in control alternative. It's, I am in control. I know what tomorrow brings. No one is in control. Everything's chaos. That's not the answer either. Rather, God is in control, and God knows tomorrow. I am in his hands. And that's not only the correct attitude, that's the safe attitude. It's not I'm in control. It's not no one is. God is in control, and God knows what tomorrow brings. That's a way in which we can take that little line about sorcery. What's the principle here? Number one, it's related to these other commandments around it. It's related to an attitude that I sometimes have, but the better attitude is God is in control, and God knows. The commandments are intertwined our law-breaking is expansive as it crosses over commandments. But this should also remind us that Christ's law-keeping is comprehensive. As comprehensive as my law-breaking is, that when I do this and when I fail to do this, it results in not just breaking those pieces of the law, but all these other pieces. Christ was able in his life to keep all of the interconnected pieces of the commandments perfectly. That is a feat only the God-man can do. And that is the law-keeping we need, that we lack. Well, the commandments are not only intertwined, but also what's, uh, what's shown here 
is the intertwined relationships uh, that we have. As we see in verses 20 to 21, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Commandments are connected to one another, but our relationship with one another is connected with our relationship with God. In verses 20 to 20, it says, it 20 to 21, it's as if you could hear God saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. Don't treat other people like the Egyptians treated you. Don't do, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Don't wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Me rescuing you from slavery affects your relationships with others. That's another principle that we see here in this section of Scripture. Well, a third principle that I want us to see in in, uh, chapter 23 as we move there is that God wants us to be a good neighbor in the courts and on the road. He starts these examples and these cases start with what I'll call easy cases. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Uh, At the end in verse 3, you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. These are kind of easy. Look, in whatever situation you're in, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't side with the majority just because they're the majority. You should stick to the truth. You also shouldn't side with a person because of their status. Oh, he's poor, even though he did wrong, I'm going to side with him. Or, that person's rich, I'm going to side with him. You should stand for the truth. This is doing justice in the courts and doing justice in our relationships. Then we get a harder case. Verse 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Help your enemy when he's hurting. That is a harder case and a harder principle for us to apply. But it's, you can hear Jesus in his example of the Good Samaritan echoing this section of scripture right here. The one who seems like the enemy is the one who's helping. I read a story this week of a pastor who was visiting the country of Lebanon. And if you don't recall, Lebanon underwent a civil war from about 1975 to 1990. And as Lebanon was going through this civil war, the nation of Syria got involved. And a lot of atrocities were committed Uh, a lot of lebanese individuals died not only because of the civil war but because of the nation of syria and its people getting involved as well it ends in 1990 well fast forward 21 years 2011 ish the nation of syria is now involved in a civil war and refugees from the enemy nation between lebanon and syria refugees from the enemy nation of syria are flooding into Lebanon. And so this pastor, 
who is visiting churches in Lebanon, hears these kinds of things. I met a church leader who said, this entire town was under siege by Syrians for 100 days. So this is, you know, in the 70, 1975 to 1990 period. This entire town is under siege by Syrians for 100 days. And that town was then caring for 2,000 Syrian refugees. They met another Lebanese pastor. The pastor said in his sermon, My father was killed by Syrians. That pastor then invited a Syrian refugee to come forward so he could wash their feet and give an example of what forgiveness looks like and what helping your enemy looks like. They met another woman who said, I stood at gunpoint before Syrian soldiers as I held my baby and prayed for God to take me first. And that lady was part of another church that was caring for 500 Syrian refugees. We don't live in a primarily agrarian culture where you're going to be walking down the road and seeing an enemy or seeing someone who you don't like, who is your enemy, struggling under the load of their ox. But what you will see in your workplace is the one who is your enemy struggling with a project. What you will see is in your school the one who is your enemy struggling with math material, struggling with remembering something. And we are tempted to walk by that person and to relish in their suffering. Yeah, I'm glad you got yours. Glad you can't figure it out. Shows you, what does the word say? Love your enemy. This is the principle that we draw from this section of scripture that's talking about helping your enemy when you see him under the load on the road with his ox. But the principle is love your enemy. And this is how it applies in our day. And what does this remind us about God? What does this remind us of in redemption? God loved his enemies. He loved his enemies so much so that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We have a case that gives us a principle that reminds us of redemption. The last principle and reminder that I want us to see and look at this morning is that we are called to rest only in Yahweh. We take a look at verses, chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. Uh, first, God mentions the land being given rest. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall lie, let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So, again, for us who are not agrarians, this is a fallow system where you cultivate a field year after year, but one year you let it lie, you let it rest, you don't plant and reap from it. Whatever grows there, you let, in this case, in, in Israel, you let the poor gather that. Commentators mentioned this system likely rotated, so the poor aren't gathering just one time every seven years, uh, but that this section of fields, you know, or these 
fields uh, lie fallow this year, and then seven years, and seven years later it'll happen again, and thus with other fields. So they lie fallow in kind of a rotation. So the land is given rest. God's people are given rest. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And lastly, in this rest only in Yahweh portion, I want us to see that God's people and the land not only rest, but they worship. We skipped over verses 14 to 18, which is a section full of uh, feasts and worship times, but I want us to conclude with verse 19. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Sounds strange every time you read it, doesn't it? But this, again, is a Canaanite practice of worship in which you take a young kid, a young, a young sheep, and would boil it in the milk of its mother. It's a Canaanite worship practice. And God is saying, again, with example after example, you only worship me. You rest in me. You worship me, and you don't worship like the other nations do. That's what's going on here. And what I want us to see from this is that God wants you to worship him, number one, and God wants you to rest in him. That this time and this day especially, and even these moments here, as we listen to God's word, as we sing his praises, that this is a time of rest and refreshment. One early Christian comment on rest comes from the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers in Egypt. Uh, This is a document from somewhere between 350 and 450 AD. So these are early Christians, and it recounts this uh, incident, which I laughed at. Some old men came to see Abba Pomen. I laughed at it, but it gives us a principle. Some old men came to see Abba Pomen and said to him, We see some of the brothers falling asleep during divine worship. Should we wake them up? Could be Palmetto Hills. <laughs> we see some of the brothers falling asleep during divine worship. Should we wake them up? He said, Abba Pomen said, As for me, When I see a brother who is falling asleep during the office or during worship, I lay his head on my knees and let him rest. And so uh, I am going to now on, from now on, when I see someone uh, with their eyes closed nodding off, I will come down and lay you down to sleep. Wouldn't that be lovely? I think there's a bit of hyperbole. Uh, And no, I'm not saying that uh, we, I'm not encouraging us to fall asleep in worship, but what I do want us to get is this old saint's attitude. The attitude is, this is a time to rest, to let it go, as if falling asleep were okay almost, almost. Um, That's the attitude I want us to have in this moment. As one author said, we too must have a period in which we lie fallow and restore our souls. These are the ways in which we can take a look at sections of Scripture like this and see from these individual case applications of the Ten Commandments 
This is the principle that God is telling us. And it reflects this about his character, the redeemer, redemption, and what he wants for our lives. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for your word, that you give us the Holy Spirit to understand it. With hard sections of scripture, Lord, that we cannot as easily understand as others, we do need your help in applying it to our lives, but we do see that we need it, that we need to love our enemies, that we need to remember the cost that Christ paid. And so we ask that you would help us to be able to do that, even now as we come to the Lord's table, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.